You found First Timothy? All right, let's get into the Word of God together this morning. Uh, every year, I, I try to, I, I make a habit of just preaching an expository series out of a text in the Word of God. You know, God uses all people, all different types of personalities, and, and me personally, I'm kind of a, I'm a visionary thinker. I, I see things in pictures, and so a lot of times I'll get a concept for a message, uh, and, and I'll, I'll carry that thought for several weeks, but I, I want to make sure that we're good students of the Word of God, and, and I'm not just preaching what's on my heart or, or the things that I like to talk about, and so every year as a personal discipline, I just say, I'm, I'm going to take a text. And line by line, we're just going to preach what the Word says. Not, not going to just you know, preach my thoughts on things happening. We're going to preach what the Word says. And so today, I want to begin a series like that in 1 Timothy. And I, I want to start, I'll just give you a little bit of context for what we're looking at here. This is the first of three letters that are called the pastoral epistles. It's 1 Timothy, it's 2 Timothy, and it's the book of Titus. And these are the last three letters that we have from the Apostle Paul. They're called the pastoral epistles because more than anywhere else in the word of God, here is where we get instructions for how to lead the church, what it ought to look like to be a part of the church. So let me just say here on week one of this series, I recognize most of you are not going to be pastors, but the reason this is important is because all of us are called to be the church. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a way to act in church. It might be helpful right now to just tell the person next to you, act right. You know, <laughs> There is a way. And so Paul writes this letter. Before we, we get into it too far, I want to introduce uh, the author and his audience. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. This is customary in this day to introduce the letter by introducing yourself. And so Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's interesting, when, when Paul wrote his early letters, he wrote really short introductions, and the, the more letters he wrote, the longer the introductions got. So we get to the end of his last letters, and this is the only letter where he doesn't just say grace and peace to you, he adds mercy. And, and it's kind of a foreshadowing, perhaps, of the fact that Timothy might need some mercy as he's pastoring this church in Ephesus. Let me give you a little bit of the background in case you know nothing of these men. Paul, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, went on uh, three, really four, missionary journeys. And on his second one, he met this young man named Timothy. He had actually just parted ways with his ministry partner, Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas traveled together, and uh, a young man traveled with him. Not Timothy, another man named John Mark. And before they even finished the first missionary journey, John Mark quit. And so Paul was upset about it. They're getting ready to go out a second time. And Barnabas says, well, let's give him another shot. And Paul says, forget it, man. No way. I'm not taking that kid with me. And, and Barnabas is like, come on, Paul. You got to give this guy a chance. And Paul said, you give him a chance. And so Paul and Barnabas actually split. Barnabas took John Mark and he went one direction. Paul took Silas and he went in another direction. And he wasn't very long into that journey that they came to a town called Lystra. This is Acts chapter 16. And the Bible says he met a young man named Timothy. 
Now, I don't know if he had a guilty conscience because he left John Mark or if he just, you know, got, got in tune with the Lord and realized we have to be about raising up the next generation. But when he saw this young man, Timothy, he recognized potential. The Bible says he wanted to take him with him. He understood that, that, that he loved the Lord and that Timothy came from a good family that loved the Lord. Even though his father was Greek, his mother was a Jew. And in fact, in his second letter, Paul talks about the faith of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. He knew his family. When he was there in Lystra, he laid hands on Timothy. Later, he said, stir up the gift of God that was in you at that moment when I laid hands on you. So Timothy was saved, but maybe it was under Paul's ministry. He received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul takes him with him. They go on this uh, missionary journey together. And very quickly, Timothy becomes an integral part of Paul's ministry. In fact, there was one moment uh, when, when Paul get ran out of Berea. He trusted Timothy to stay there and to lead and to teach the church. Uh, not too long after that, Timothy became Paul's emissary. He went and represented him in places like Corinth and Philippi. You know, Paul couldn't just uh, mail a letter or, or send a video to the churches, so he had to send a representative. Oftentimes, Timothy was that representative. In fact, six of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote, in six of them, he acknowledges Timothy as a co-author. Now, a lot of times we, we just look at all the letters and we go, oh, the Apostle Paul wrote those. But in the letters, he said these letters are from Paul and from Timothy. In one of those letters, or a few of those letters actually, we, we learned that Timothy was with Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome. So if you've ever read the book of Acts, you know the last several chapters tells the story of Paul uh, as a, as a uh, prisoner going on a ship towards Rome and shipwrecked and he finally gets there and he spends uh, a lengthy season in prison well Timothy was with him that whole time in fact it was in that prison in Rome that he wrote a letter to the church at Philippi and he gives us a little bit more insight into the relationship that he had with this young man look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 about Timothy verse 19 says this I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Now, look at verse 20 with me. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. How many of you think that's pretty good? If the apostle Paul says, I've got no one else like this guy right here, he thinks a lot of Timothy. In verse 21, he says, for everyone looks out for their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He's not his biological son, but he said, that's the kind of relationship that I have with Timothy. As the book of Acts ends, you know, Paul's still a prisoner, but he expects to be released. He even writes that in his letter to the Philippians. Well, he does get released, and he goes to different places to minister, and when he gets back to Ephesus, he leaves Timothy there. That's the church that Paul spent more time at than anywhere else. He ministered in Ephesus for years, and he, he puts Timothy there to pastor that church. He, he leaves Titus on the island of Crete. And he goes on to Macedonia and some other places, and uh, we, he may have even made it as far as Spain. We don't know. But eventually, he was imprisoned again. And while he's in prison for the last time, 
he writes three more letters. We have 1 Timothy and Titus, and then his last letter, 2 Timothy. And in that letter, his last request is this. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. It's the last thing the Apostle Paul asked for. Timothy, I want you to come to me. And we don't know for sure, but he probably got there. He may have even spent time incarcerated with Paul again. All we get is a little uh, insight at the end of the book of Hebrews, which was written years later, and it says this, Timothy, our brother, has been released. We know Paul was never released. He was martyred. When you get to 1 Timothy, he's already been with this young man for about 12 years. So Timothy's probably mid-20s, maybe early, early 30s at the most. But he's been with the Apostle Paul for 12 years. They have a lot of ministry experience together. So why, why does Paul write this letter? Well, he actually tells us exactly why he writes it. So skip ahead with me, if you will, to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Verse 14 and 15, Paul makes it really clear. He says this, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, here's the purpose, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. So, so that's a little background of the story. Now, I'm, I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can through this uh, first part of chapter 1. Go with me to verse 3, chapter 1. Paul says this, as I urged you, by the way, that word urge is really command. It's a military term, so it's not an optional urge. It's a strong urge. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer. So here's Timothy's Serving the Lord in Ephesus, gets a letter from the Apostle Paul. Oh, this is great, man. I got mail from the Apostle Paul. What does he say? Opens the letter from Paul to Timothy. Grace, mercy, peace. First thing he says, stay there. Like, you remember how I commanded you? I'm doing it again. Stay there. It kind of makes you think maybe Timothy didn't want to stay there. Again, a little foreshadowing into the, some of the stuff we might get into in the next few weeks. But he says, I want you to stay there. And it's no wonder because looking at verse 3 there, you understand why he might not want to stay there because he has to deal with certain people. How many of you, air quotes necessary, how many of you know certain people? That's, that's what the apostle says. I need you to stay there and I need you to deal with certain people. Honestly, Come on, be real. We can all relate to this. We can all relate to the fact that, you know, there, I love the church. I love being in the house of God. But there are certain people. Don't look at them. That would be weird. But we can all relate to this, right? I mean, it's a good reminder right at the beginning of the letter that we are called to be committed to the church of Jesus Christ. Not committed to our comfort, not committed to our preferences. Come on, somebody. We're called to be committed to the church of Jesus Christ. It'd be so much easier to just, just slip in after the music starts, duck back out during the closing prayer. It'd be so much easier to just kind of, you know, church hop. It'd be so much easier to just sit at home and watch it online, right? 
Glad you're with us online, by the way, if you're joining us online. We're glad you're there. But if you have to deal with certain people, you got issues in your house. You guys need to have a family meeting. But we took a risk. We showed up in a packed Sunday morning service, and we get it. Sometimes it's challenging. Maybe, maybe for you, the certain people are those that over-spiritualize everything. You know, like their, their faith seems more like mysticism than Christianity to you because they, they over-spiritualize everything you're talking. They're the ones that it's 2023, and they're still clicking send on those emails that say, if you send this to 10 people, God's going to bless you in the next five minutes. Come on, how many of you know God is not going to bless you because you gave some company my email address? It's not 2010 anymore. Stop doing that. But you know, it's over-spiritualized everything. Or, or, or maybe for you, the certain people are the overzealous Christians that are worried about always being contaminated by the, by the world. Every week it's a new boycott. We've got to boycott this and boycott that. And, and, and it's just overly, overly zealous, overly sensitive. Or, or, or maybe for you, it's, it's, the, it's the ones that you meet at church and they seem like they would be good Christian friends. You know, I mean, you watch, they're, they're getting into the worship. They seem fun. Their, their family seems normal. And you're like, we should really connect. And then you get together with them outside of church. And you realize the term Christian is relative. And they're ready to, like, hit the club. They're ready to get wasted. And you're like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. I didn't see that side of them on Sunday morning. Don't look at them. That would be so weird. Don't do that. <laughs> How many of you know, like, we all have to deal with certain people. And so Paul is writing because in Ephesus, the certain people that Timothy has to deal with, they're most likely Jewish, and they, they have gotten hung up on genealogies. They've gotten hung up on mythology about who's related to who, and, and there was like a, a level of spirituality if you could like play the name game, and yeah, well, my great, 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 great aunt was married to Hulamelijah, and he was in the temple when Solomon, you know, put the, and, and so people thought they had like an inroad with God because of their pedigree. These certain people were doing damage to the church, and, and Paul had seen it before, in fact, a few years earlier, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. Before he ever left Timothy there to pastor it, he wrote to the Ephesians. Here's what he said to those Jews in Ephesians chapter 2, or chapter 3. He said, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Come on, somebody say together. He said, they're members together of one body, and they share together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So he was trying to communicate to them, even in that earlier letter, look, you're not superior. They are together with you. And to the Gentiles in the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote these words in chapter 2. He said, remember that at that time, talking about before they met Christ as Savior, at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. But now 
in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Is anybody thankful you have a but now in your testimony too? Like I used to be this, but now I'm saved. I I used to be separate from God, but now I've been brought near. That was the message that Paul was communicating to this church, that it doesn't matter how you were raised or or what your upbringing was or what nationality you have or, or what your family lineage is. We're all brought near through the blood of Jesus. So Paul says to Timothy, I need you to stay there and I need you to deal with these certain people because their focus is not on the gospel and what it can produce. Their focus is on speculation and folklore. Today, maybe for you, the certain people are always the ones that come to you with a conspiracy theory. They're the the Christian watchdogs of our day that always wanna talk about the, the, the next thing that, that, that is happening, or, or maybe it's the Americanization of the gospel or the, the politicization of the gospel, and, and at some point you go, man, it's, it's not about that. It's not about that. I, I was reminded this week in my study about a book that came out in 1997. I'm going to date myself here. That was the year I graduated high school, so if that made you feel old, I'm sorry. Some of you are like, no, it makes you look old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 1997, this book came out called The Bible Code. It went to number two on New York Times bestseller list. Christians ate this stuff up. And then book two came out. And then in 2010, book three came out, which didn't sell nearly as well because people finally got a little wise. But the book's claim was that there was an Israeli mathematician named Dr. Elijahu Rips who has decoded the Bible with a computer formula unlocking 3,000-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination or the election of Bill Clinton. So the claim was that these things have always been in the Bible all along, but it wasn't until the computer age that now we can scramble the words together and put in a formula and come back. The, The book actually says everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima, from the moon landing to the collision of a comet with Jupiter. The author of the book was Dr. Michael Drazen. He died in 2020, still a self-proclaimed atheist, by the way. Meanwhile, Christians are eating up his books. And Dr. Ribs, the mathematician from Israel, debunked the writings. And yet people went head over heels for this. Can I just say, religious novelties are everywhere. They're everywhere. Fantastic claims of new truths being raised on everything from raising perfect kids to restraining the aging process, and we eat it up. That's why people still buy those ridiculous magazines at the grocery store checkout line, right? I mean, you see that, and you're like, whoa, Elvis was spotted in Kentucky. <laughs> you're like, ah, that's ridiculous. Queen Elizabeth can't really be a lizard. Let, let me check it out. And then you would want to read it anyway. <laughs> Paul says this. He, he said in verse 4, he said, you know what they do? They devote themselves to it. In verse 6, he calls it meaningless talk. In verse 7, he says this. They want to be teachers of the law. 
that they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Like, boy, has there ever been a more practical scripture for today? There are so many people out there that they want to be teachers. They just don't know what they're talking about. He said they, they don't understand what they so confidently affirm. And so, so Paul says at the latter part of verse 4 and, and verse 5, he's, he's reminding Timothy, this is why you need to stay in Ephesus this is why you, you still need to be committed to the local church in spite of certain people. It's still worth the fight. It's worth even having confrontation sometimes. Why? Why is it worth it? Look at verse 4. At the end of verse 4, he says, such things, talking about what they're into, such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. This is Paul's goal. He says, what it's really all about is advancing God's work. That's why I picked up the pen. That's why I wrote the letter. That's why you need to stay at Ephesus because the gospel has to be advancing. That's what this is all about. In verse five, he says, the goal of this command that I'm giving you is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. As I read that this week, I just was reminded again of this simple truth and may we never forget it. The gospel that saves us is supernatural. I know that sounds elementary, but I, I want to promise you, it doesn't go any deeper than this truth. The church that Jesus is building is a supernatural church. It's supernatural what God's doing. This love that Paul's talking about, he says the, the, the purpose of it. The goal of my command is love. This love that is produced in your life when you receive the gospel is a supernatural love. Only a supernatural love can transform you in such a way that you could live out the greatest commandment. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's not a person within the sound of my voice today that can do that successfully outside of a supernatural, miraculous work of salvation in your life. That's what Jesus offers to us. It is supernatural. It's a love for God's people. It's a love for God himself. And it's not taught. It's a work of the spirit that only the gospel can produce. That's why Paul said to the church in Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so then here in this verse, he explains this, this supernatural love in verse five. He says, the goal of this command is love and it comes from a pure heart. I don't wanna ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you would just confidently say, I have a pure heart. Probably none of us, if we're honest, not on our own anyway. But Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Psalm 24 asks the rhetorical question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into his holy dwelling place? It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, outside of God's grace, none of us. None of us can. That's why in Psalm 51, David's incredible confession, in Psalm 51:10, he prays this prayer. He says, God, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me because a pure heart only comes from God. It's supernatural. 
And so Paul explains the goal of this command is love. It comes from a pure heart. And then he says it comes from a good conscience. In other words, it's not a love that, that, that is motivated by ulterior motives. It's not a love that you give to get. It's not a bargaining chip that you place on the altar before God. And it's not a love that is motivated by guilt. But it breaks my heart when I see it, but there's so many people that wanna, they wanna try God, but they're motivated by guilt. And so they come to church and they, they attend for a little while and they go, well, maybe I'll read the Bible a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm trying God. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying. Can I just help you today? Trying God is not a thing. You can't, you can't try surrender to lordship. You either surrender or you don't. He, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You don't get to try God. There's a lot of people that are like, well, I just got a one foot in and one foot out. I'm going to try this out, see how it works. It won't work. Because the love that God births in your heart at the point of salvation, it comes from a pure heart and it comes from a good conscience. And then he says it comes from a sincere faith. Sincere faith literally means a faith without hypocrisy. A faith without hypocrisy. It means, it means it's real. I really, I really believe this. I really genuinely put my faith in God. So Paul's message right here at the beginning of this letter is this. Timothy, stay there. Stay there in spite of the fact that you have to deal with certain people. Know the church isn't perfect, but, but stay there. I need you to lead and I need you to point people back to what advances the gospel. Not these peripheral issues, not, not, not these trivial things that people like to get caught up in. They make great water cooler conversation, but it's not advancing the gospel. It's not doing anything to build the kingdom. I need you to stay there, and I need you to build God's work. And God's work, he says, is built by faith. It produces a love for God. It produces a love for God's people, and it comes from a pure heart. It comes from a good conscience, and it comes from a sincere faith. God's work is not superstitious. Paul says it's supernatural. And this is worthy of the work. And then in verse six, he essentially tells him the main thing, Timothy, is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. Look at verse seven. He's talking about those false teachers. He said they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. This Thursday, Day and I had the opportunity uh, to go see Colin Snyder sworn in as an officer with the uh, uh, Springsbury Township Police Department. It's a really awesome honor. In fact, uh, Dwayne was uh, also sworn in, right? Just graduated as an officer now with Elizabethtown. Yeah, so, so Dwayne Stutzman in this service and Colin Snyder in the last service. We've got two brand new officers of the law. Don't you even feel safer just saying that now? Let me just say, like, that took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. Like, they, they, they don't just hand those badges out. Aren't you glad? Like, wouldn't you hate to have officers of the law that don't know the law? Like, that's what Paul said. Like, the problem is with these teachers in Ephesus, <laughs> they want to teach the law. They just didn't study. They don't know the book. They, they're not capable of teaching the law. So Paul says then in verse eight, we know that the law is good if 
one uses it properly. That's such a key. I don't have time to unpack that thought today, but let me tell you, that is a, that's a whole sermon series in itself. Using the law properly. Because we read in the New Testament, and we thank God for this, under the new covenant, the Bible says we are not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Amen. Amen. That's why I got to play the piano this morning and not sacrifice a bull. Amen. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Jesus died once and for all. We don't have to keep bringing sacrifices. Because we're not subject to the law, then what good is it? Is the law any good? What do we do with the law? If we're not under the law, does the Old Testament even matter anymore? Does it matter that David said, I love your law more than thousands of gold and silver coins? It absolutely matters. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So this, this statement in, in verse 8 is critical. The law is good if we use it properly. How do we use it properly? Well, we don't live under the condemnation of the law. But the law actually points us towards a righteousness that can only be attained through Jesus. The Bible says the purpose of the law is to condemn you. It's like when you're driving down the road and you, you drive by an officer, you might not even be doing anything wrong and all of a sudden you're like, <laughs> you know, right? You get nervous, like check your speed, turn suit, am I good? When, when did I get my, my inspection out? You know, you're looking, why? Because the, the law, it convicts us. It points us to a standard of righteousness. The sign said 55, not 65. Righteousness, unrighteousness. You understand? Like, and so the law points us towards Jesus. And so Paul says, the law's good. The law's good. If it's used correctly. And then in the next several verses, he lists 14 examples of lawbreakers. Just, just read it. with. We don't have time to talk about it. But he says in verse 9, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly, and the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. The law is made for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. That's a pretty good list. And if you're reading all these and you're going, I think I'm good so far. Didn't mo murder mom, dad, got a fornicator. Like, if you're checking the boxes in your head, that might be an indication that you're still living under the law. And so before he finishes, Paul adds this little disclaimer here at the end of verse 10. He says, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So let me just say, if the first 14 examples didn't get you, the whatever else just got all of us. Because we're all guilty of falling short of God's glorious standard of righteousness. And the law points us to a salvation that can only be attained by the grace and mercy of God. So after Paul reflects on the law and on how it's still good, and he rattles off for Timothy the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. It's almost like in that moment, he just kind of stops writing and he thinks, that's who I was. That, 
that was me. And so Paul can't help but just go back to his own testimony. And he just, he just starts gushing on the grace of God. And he says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength. In other words, I, I was in the list. I was contrary to sound doctrine, but I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength that he considers me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, and I was a violent man. Listen, he's not evangelistically speaking. When Paul says, I was a violent man, go back and read Acts chapter 7. The Bible says when they were stoning Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church, that Paul was standing there holding their coats. So they could wind up a little better. The Bible says he was giving approval of their death and breathing out murderous threats against the church. He said, Timothy, that's who I was. I was a violent man, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. That can be your story today too, friend. No matter what your, your, your past looks like, Listen to the Apostle Paul just talking about how lavish the grace of God is because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. I love that word, abundantly. We often sing about amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, but can I tell you, it's not just amazing grace, it's abundant grace which means it's not just a one-time opportunity. In Romans, Paul writes that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It's abundant. It's abounding towards you. And yes, it is amazing. And he says, I was given this grace. Verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now, this is the first of five times that Paul says this in the pastoral epistles. As he's, as he's writing letters to these young ministers of the gospel that are leading churches in Ephesus and Titus, he often says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And, and then what he's going to do is he's going to grab one of the liturgical statements of the New Testament church. Maybe it's a line from a song that they sang, or it's a proverb. These little important nuggets, it would almost be like our, our, our core values. Like, we need everybody to be on the page with this. And so this is a worthy statement that deserves full acceptance. And here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Would you all just say that statement of faith with me out loud? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul's like, Timothy, this is what it's all about. This is why, that's why you need to stay. That's why you need to deal with certain people sometimes. You need to make sure that the church is advancing the gospel, that we're preaching a message of, of supernatural love that, that only comes through having a reconciled relationship with God through his son Jesus. It comes from a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Don't ever forget. Don't, don't ever let the, the culture or the, the whatever the 
talking heads want to go on and on about. Don't ever let them take your focus off of this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Jesus declared in Luke 19.10. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save loss. That's why he came. Several years ago, I, I, I preached a message about what God's heart beats for. I've, I've heard it said many times in my life, God only had one son, and he called him to be a missionary. It's easy for us on a Sunday morning, it's easy for me, to, to look out and see a, a packed house in the middle of the summer and to get excited about what we see. But I posed a question in that message years ago about having a heart that beats for what God's heart beats for. And I, and I made a statement. I said, the truth is, as, as exciting as all this is, look around. God's heart beats for the empty seats. Like everybody in the room matters, you know. The, the good shepherd, he counted the 99, but when he counted the 99, he went after the one. His heart beats for the empty seats. And uh, sometime later, Miranda made a sign, gave it to me. It said, God's heart beats for the empty seat. I see that sign every day I come to the church and I, I just challenge you right now to consider, is your heart beating for what God's heart beats for? There's lots of things you can get excited about, lots of things you can be interested in. And, and I'm not saying any other thing is a bad thing, but what I am saying is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds to that statement, of whom I am the worst. Notice Paul didn't say, and I used to be the worst. He said, I am the worst. This is the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest missionary that ever lived. I am the worst. There's a humility that he never got over. There's a humility that he never got past. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm the worst sinner. Just two more verses and we're gonna close. Look at verse 16. He says, but for that very reason, because I was the worst, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul said, the fact that I was so lost in sin only demonstrates God's grace all the more, that he would choose me to preach the gospel? Come on, how incredible is this gospel? So I have to say with him, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. And then Paul ends this first little section, and we'll end here by sharing another statement of faith in the church. It was actually one of the doxologies. They would end the church with the doxo uh, a gathering with a doxology. And having, having taken a few moments to remember what Jesus saved him from and how incredible the word of God is working in your life supernaturally, Paul says these words in verse 17. And I wonder if you'd just say them with me. Let's read it out loud. Verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
amen. Paul says, like, how else can we respond except with praise to the eternal God? That means his kingdom's never gonna end. It's eternal. To the immortal God, that means he can't be conquered, he can't be corrupted, he can't be corroded, he is immune from decay. He's the invisible God, that means we serve him by faith. No eye can see him, he lives in unapproachable light. But he is the only, he's the only God. He has singularity as the only God who ever was and whoever will be. Paul says, to him be honor and glory forever and forever. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this room as we get ready to end this service. I just want to take a moment to just pray over us collectively, but I want to give you an opportunity right now to to just respond to the the reality of the, the weight of the gospel, the way that Paul did. I mean, he was saved. He was serving Jesus. But when he took a few moments to consider how unworthy he was and how right the law is in condemning him, he humbly said, I received mercy I didn't deserve. Because I was the worst sinner there was. But his grace saved me. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. If, if you're here today and you, maybe, maybe I described you earlier and you, you're going, you know, I've, I've been trying God. I've never actually, I've never trusted him to save me from my sins and to have his spirit live on the inside of me. I've been trying to serve him out of my conscience. That's exhausting. I've been trying to serve him with my own purity of heart and that's impossible. But today you would say, I'm not gonna try God anymore. I'm gonna surrender to God. And I'm gonna let the supernatural miracle that is the gospel of salvation change my life. If that's you today, I wanna encourage you right where you're standing to just make an altar right there. Would you just bow your head with me all over this room? Every head bowed, every eye closed. In this moment, if you're here today and you say, I I just need to surrender my life to Jesus. I I feel like Paul who said, I'm the worst but I want to receive the grace and the mercy that he received. If that's you today, right where you're standing, will you just slip up a hand so I know who I'm praying for? I'm about to pray for you right now. In just a couple moments, we're going to close. But just as a sign of your faith in this moment, thank you, thank you, sir. Would you, just anyone else, you say, that's me. I just, I need to surrender everything to God in this moment. I'm asking for the last time. Anyone else, just lift up a hand high and say, that's, that's me, that's me. You can put your hand back down. We're going to pray. Right now, believers all over this room, just pray. Pray right now. You say it in your own words. I'm gonna pray out loud. God, I thank you that today you are in this house and you are still rescuing sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and you're doing it right now. So God, we acknowledge our sin. As David prayed, Lord, we pray, created me a pure heart. I can't do it on my own. My good works won't do it. My my family history won't do it. I confess, Jesus, I'm the worst. I feel like the worst of all, but God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient. That your grace is abounding right now. 
towards whosoever would believe. Thank you for salvation today, Lord. Thank you that you've called us to be a part of the beautiful, glorious body of Christ. God, thank you that you've seated us in a family here at this church. There's there's no perfect church. Every church has certain people. But Lord, we we don't want to cause one another to stumble. We want to encourage one another to advance the gospel. So give us the heart, Lord God, like your heart, a heart that beats for the lost, a heart that beats for the proclamation of truth. God, we thank you today that you are building your kingdom in and through us for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.